The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. The date was June 6, 1918. Those of us who have served in the Marine Corps might recognize that date. The location was just a couple of miles outside of Paris, France. And the context was at the heat of World War One. The U.S. Marines, who were a relatively new bunch at the time, were sent to aid in the battle just outside of Paris, France, right near a little forest called Bellow Wood. The German forces had advanced pretty close to Paris, and they had dug in very deeply in this wooded forest with very heavily armored machine guns, very low. They had also rigged up a way to station those very high in the treetops. The Marines were up against a very impossible situation. But it was a critical point in the war, and the command came down for the Marines to advance and take Hill Number 142, just outside of Bellow Wood. As the platoon, as the whistle blew and the platoon came out of their, their trenches and advanced toward Bellow Wood, they advanced in a hail of machine gun fire. Many, many lives were lost in that first wave. Anxiously awaiting a report back in the command tent where the leadership, a runner, comes back to the tent, reports to the command. Casualties have been great. All the officers have been lost. In the midst of that conversation in that tent was a young man who was 25 years old. His name, Whedon Edward Osborne. you never heard of him, have you? 25 years old. He had reported just a few days earlier. He was brand new to the service. He heard the report. He grabbed his pack and he raced out of the tent and headed to the front line. Not with a weapon to fight, but with a goal, to rescue the wounded. Weedon Osborne rescued multiple Marines that day, carried them on his back to safety, drugged them when he couldn't carry them. He came upon on that, on that battlefield his commanding officer by the name of Captain Donald Duncan, wounded severely. He carried Captain Duncan to the safety of a tree-lined field, and at that point an artillery shell hit nearby, and Whedon Osborne lost his life. Whedon Edward Osborne, 25 years old, he was not a gunnery sergeant, of course. He wasn't even a line officer. You know what he was? He was a dentist. He was a dentist. The only Navy dentist to ever earn the Congressional Medal of Honor. In the citation, the Congressional Medal of Honor, it says, for extraordinary heroism while attached to the 5th Regiment United States Marines in actual conflict with the enemy and under fire during the advance on Boresh, France, on 6 June 1918. In the hottest of the fighting when the Marines made their famous advance on Boresh, at the southern edge of Bellow Wood, Lieutenant Junior Grade Osborne, 
threw himself zealously into the work of rescuing the wounded. Extremely courageous in the performance of his perilous task, he was killed while carrying a wounded officer to a place of safety. You know, the history of our great nation on that timeline is dotted with hundreds and hundreds of people whose stories most of us don't know, just like Whedon Osborne, 25-year-old dentist, who gave his life rescuing the wounded. That's what this weekend really is about in our nation. It's not a time to exalt the nation per se, but it is a time to exalt the virtues of the people who make the nation great. And it's appropriate for us this morning because the virtues that make the nation great are virtues that are exalted in the Scriptures and exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who's gone before all others to give his life to rescue the wounded and the dying. And so this Memorial Day weekend, we pause to give thanks for those in our nation who've given their lives. And we remember that every one of them is sort of an arrow that points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God who became man to die, to rescue those in deadly danger. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful people this morning. Grateful to live in a free nation, in a nation where we can gather like we have this morning and worship in freedom. Grateful to live in a nation where we can speak and be protected, where we can gather publicly and have freedom, where we can worship without fear. We recognize, Lord, this morning that the freedoms we enjoy each and every day are freedoms that have not come to us without cost. In fact, the cost has been dreadfully high throughout the years. Many like Weedon Osborne, a dentist, have given their lives, shed their own blood, that we might do what we do today and enjoy the freedoms that we have. And as we reflect on them, we're reminded that even in these days that we live, there are men and women who are in grave danger and who are dying to continue to protect and secure our freedom. We give thanks for each and every one of them this morning. We worship with grateful hearts for their sacrifice. And we're mindful this morning that all around our nation are people for whom People who do not need a Memorial Day holiday to be reminded of the loss. Because they sit in their homes today or they gather to worship with God's people as widows. Widowers who've lost their companion to war. Or as children who've lost a mother or father. So, Father, we pray for them this morning, that you would comfort them uh, with the comfort of your Holy Spirit. That whatever gaps are left in their life, that you would fill them by your goodness and by your grace. That you would be a companion to the companionless, that you would be a father to the fatherless. And that this weekend you would pour out your love and your grace in measures 
that would be real and personal to those who've lost much. And Lord Jesus, just to reflect on these things is to give us hearts that are filled with gratitude for you. For you are the God who became flesh and dwelt among men. God of perfect righteousness. Who laid down his life for his friends. Shed your very own blood, Lord Jesus, on a cross. Crucified in our place. That we, sinners who had no hope but only death and destruction in our path that we might have life everlasting. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. We are grateful for what you have done for us. And we are grateful that you are still about the work of rescuing the wounded, that you are still about the work of rescuing people from the domain of darkness, transforming their hearts and transferring them to your very own kingdom of light. And as recipients of that grace, Lord, we exalt you and we praise you this morning above all things. It is our joy to worship you. It is our joy to gather with your people and to study your word. For we have much to be grateful for. As we open up your word and study in these moments, Lord, we pray you would continue to enlighten our hearts, that you would open our minds to receive your truth. We're grateful for our pastor who's prepared and who's studied this week and comes now to deliver your word. May we receive his words as your words this morning. May they pierce us to the heart and draw us to you. For we pray it, Lord Jesus, in your holy and precious name. Amen. We come to chapter 3 of Second Peter. We've been in these two epistles exactly a year. Um, first and Second Peter. And we'll wrap up Peter in a few weeks. Notice I didn't tell you how many weeks. But after Pastor Greg's joy-filled message last week about dog vomit and um, pigs wallowing in the mud, I'm sure you're just still basking in the joy of that message he shared. Um, And uh, yet Peter gives us some uh, or it redeems himself, maybe, in this uh, third chapter. He, he calls this, you see at the beginning, that this is now the second letter. <clears throat> um, it can be confusing to some people. Some suggest there's a lost letter somewhere, and that may be the case. That I doubt if it's lost. I'm sure God knows where it is. Um, if this is written to a different group of people, then there was another letter than the first, uh, for them, First Peter. If First Peter was written to the same group of people, then chances are this is Second Peter as we have it. Some people say the first two chapters of Second Peter 
are the first letter he's talking about. And here, since he mentions it, the third chapter is um, uh, the second letter. And, uh, but that's unlikely since chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's so much connectivity between all of those. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, I suspect that uh, Peter wrote a lot of letters. And we know Paul wrote letters that we don't have in Scripture. The church just determined not to place these letters, those letters in the canon, and some were long gone by them. And uh, yet uh, we are grateful for the letters that we have. Someone said that this letter, Second uh, Peter, it was like a bologna sandwich. You got the first chapter is bread. Uh, good, good bread for us to chew on for a while. And then in this third chapter we enter today is encouragement and, and bread for the church of Jesus Christ. And then the second chapter is that bologna in the middle of those false teachers, those false prophets and, and uh, all the bologna that they taught along the way. Uh, so you can think of Second Peter as a as a bologna sandwich. In fact, if you've come upon a false teacher, I encourage you to tell them that that's a bunch of bologna, and uh, maybe some other things as well. But you can say that he turned from the false teachers uh, that, that negative warning in chapter two. I think we had four different sermons on chapter two. Um, he turned from that to making a positive declaration of the apostles' message. He'd already done that in, in chapter 1. And he wants his readers to understand why he wrote the letter. That chapter 2, the language was very strong. Um, and it was confrontational in many ways. But now he speaks with some love and some encouragement. He still addresses these false teachers here at the beginning. Um, but and the encouragement is is more gentle um, coming from Peter's pen at this time. Let's, let me read these verses for you. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You've heard that before from from Peter, reminding. You know, the people, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'll go ahead and finish the paragraph. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. As I said, Peter mentioned uh, about reminding the people. It's important to him. Reminds them what he saw, what the apostles saw, what the apostles witnessed throughout their ministry with Jesus. In chapter 1, he reminded them, he he made a, a, a similar thought in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Let me remind you of the things you've already got. Think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. The stress is on the mind here. Pure and clear mind that's focused and learning and remembering what has been taught. Something we need to remember too. But before you can remember something, it's important that you first store it up. It's important that you first learn it. It's important that it be a priority in your life. And so he's stressing really to us the necessity of the study of the Scriptures in our own lives. Sunday morning is not enough to learn all we can about Christ's work here on earth and His work to come. No place in our Christian life for laziness. There's no place for an unfocused mind. There's no place for wandering minds. Christ demands total dedication from us, total commitment to dig into the Word, His Word. And that requires diligent study. First thing He shares for us is the scoffer's position. Verses 3 and 4, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Our mockers, some of your translations may use the word mockers, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from, from the beginning of creation. goes to memory again. Remember, this time about the Lord's coming. You can remember the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 24:42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I can go back to those that they studied um, in the Old Testament. Joel talks about the last days. You remember, Peter quotes Joel in his first sermon in Acts, talking about the last days. That time was coming, according to Joel. He reminds us the importance of being in the Word every single day is that we be reminded when these things come up, when the scoffers arrive. Those are the fault. They're false teachers, too. They're some of the ones that He's talked about in chapter 2. A scoffer is somebody who takes lightly something that should be taken seriously. 
we need to know, too, that these scoffers are in the church. How otherwise would they know the teaching of the last days? These are not outsiders out there scoffing at the church or mocking the church or or taunting the church of Jesus Christ. These aren't unbelievers who aren't interested in Christianity. These are professors of Christianity. Now, they may be false professors, but they are professors of Christianity. And they're saying there in verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? It's not going to happen ever since the fathers fell asleep. Everything's continuing the same over and over and over. You know, if they are correct, if they're correct, we won't be able to sing that last verse of that hymn, It Is Well. If they're correct, we won't be able to sing, And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back from the like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, praise the Lord, O my soul. We won't be able to sing that if they're right. He says in the last days, these will be coming. These will be coming with this message. What are the last days? Well, we talked about that earlier because he's used that term several times, and we won't go into all those details. I've mentioned it, and Pastor Greg's mentioned it in several sermons when Peter uh, brings up the last days. We know that's the age of the Messiah. That's, a, that's that, time, that period of time between his first coming and his second coming. Those are the last days. It culminates with his second coming, and that's what they're really referring to. And they do that because they're blinded. What's he say there in verse 3? In the last days, they come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, their own sinful lusts, their own evil desires. Which reminds us, too, that, that, that these scoffers don't have just an intellectual argument with God. They have a moral problem with God, too. Wanting to reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they're following their own sinful desires and not His way. These are the ones back in chapter 2, verse 1 where he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. These are those people. In a way that Peter returns to chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the corruption he's talking about among other things. Living with hope is the promise we have. False teacher doesn't want that. So they infiltrate the church and they fulfill their evil lust and their 
desires. What are those things? Turn back to chapter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, enticed unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Harsh words for the evil desires that come from the false teachers. And knowing that the coming of the Lord is designed to judge the ungodly, they scoff at it as a way to, uh, to ease their guilt, their guilty conscience. And that's their argument there in verse 4. Where's the promise of His coming? Ever since the fall, He's not going to come again. Don't worry about that. It's been too long. In this case, it's been like 40 years. In our case, it's been 2,000 Their argument is all things are continuing as they are. Nothing's going to happen different. They base their message on the idea that things have always been the same as they are right up to now and that God has not and will not intervene. God has not and will not do anything new in His plan for creation. Whatever has not yet happened is not going to happen. Life continues as as it always has. We live in a stable universe. The sun rises, the sun sets, the tides come in, the tides go out. Everything has always been the same with perfect regularity. Bloom says, the argument of the false teachers is essentially a naturalistic one, a kind of uniformitarianism. That's probably the longest word I've ever used from the pulpit. A kind of uniformitarianism that rules out divine intervention in history. And that is a doctrine, the doctrine of uniformitarianism. Everything stays the same always. It's the foundation for a type of worldview that just leaves God out of the equation. That the present processes of nature which we observe all here, will always be as they are. The evolutionists love that. Secular scientists love that because it does away with creation. Um, It has no specific significance to mankind. No accountability to God. It's a worldview for the secular historian as well. God has no plan for history, there's no second coming of Christ. There's, there's no kingdom plan. There's no new heaven and new earth. History is really heading nowhere. It's the worldview of the environmentalist in many ways. Let's devote our life to protecting the natural resources around us. We are one with Mother Earth. This is the, the, the world that's 
reserved for us and, and not to negate the fact that God has given this world to us to be good stewards of. But bottom line, it's going to be destroyed by fire, according to Peter. God is not so concerned that we defend his word against all these attacks. Now, sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's necessary that we do that. God is always concerned that we believe the truth of his word. William Hogue says, one last word about this, Uniformitarianism is a closed system model of the universe which does not have room for divine intervention in the space-time continuum. It is the result of the prideful thinking of man without God, has no room for creation, for supernatural or miraculous occurrences, or for a second coming in judgment, which brings history as we know it to a close. This is typically the world's perspective. We see that in Ecclesiastes, chapter the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. How many times have you used that? Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. It's the common thinking of the secular man. And knowing that scoffers will come and what their charges will be, we can prepare for it. But then again, we have to remember, we have to have something to remember. We have to study God's Word, the prophets and the apostles, according to Peter. Matthew Henry says, The purified minds of Christians are to be stirred up, that they may be active and lively in the work of holiness. There will be scoffers in the last day under the gospel. Men who make light of sin and mock the salvation, mock at salvation by Jesus Christ because they see no changes. Therefore, they fear not God. What he, is, what he never has done, they fancy he never can do or never will. That's the scoffer's position. But then we have Peter's position on all of this. A little side road. I haven't heard any of my counselor friends referring to this text, but uh, this is essential for us to understand, especially in the area of biblical counseling. could be like a church member comes to Pastor Peter, tells him, hey, there's scoffers in my church, and, and because they're scoffers, they've sort of halfway convinced me that Jesus isn't coming back. I've decided to sin more uh, because, it, you know, it's fun. And... Um, it doesn't seem like Jesus is returning, and this sin, though, because it was appealing at first, it's sort of weighing me down, and, and, and these scoffers are, are continue on with their pushing their word at us. Pastor Peter, what I do? And Pastor Peter puts his hand on his chin. He says, how does that make you feel? And you give an answer of how you're feeling about all this, and... Then Pastor Peter, with his hand on his chin, says, I think you have father abandonment issues. You need more weeks of therapy, weeks and weeks of therapy to get through this so that you can deal with these scoffers and maybe even enjoy your sin more. No, that's not what Pastor Peter does. 
Pastor Peter said, we've got, false, we've got a problem with false teachers. We've got a problem with mockers. We've got a problem with scoffers. Let's go to the Word of God and find out what the answer is. That's biblical counseling. And that's exactly what he does. Verses 5 through 7. He gives us a... Well, there are three answers to the scoffer's argument here. Uh, and he uses the first answer, the response from Scripture. He gives us three examples. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God and that by means of these, the world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire and kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This first example in Scripture... God created by His Word. God created everything, and the order of everything hangs on His Word. He did it before, He'll do it again, Peter's saying. Sudden creation of heaven and earth. God did intervene in the past. When God spoke... Genesis says the Word of God, the universe came into being. The heavens existed. He brought the whole world, the whole universe together by His Word and by water. Only God's eternal. Our universe was created at a distinct time in the past. And really unrelated to Peter's argument here is this discussion about the earth being formed out of water. But it's interesting. We, go, we, we see that. We go back to Genesis 1, verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Without going into all those details which I might not even be able to go into, but it seems to say that water is a basic element from which the universe was formed. God gathered the water and let the dry land appear. That's the sense of it being formed out of water. It seems overall that the earth itself emerged out of water and, 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 and life on earth is sustained by water. And as water was involved in creation, it was also involved in the earth's destruction at the time of Noah. That's the second biblical example he gives us. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He used word and water to create the world. He used it to destroy it in Noah's day. Sudden flood says to us, the world is not stable. The universe is not stable. It's not moved without interruption since the very beginning. He's meaning the flood here. And he's also reminding these scoffers that God's not only the creator, but he's also the judge. Jesus makes a similar point in Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Whereas in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. God doesn't just work on the individual level. God judges the entire world. And then his third biblical example, it will happen again, is the promise. Another judgment, just as certain, is coming in the future. The future sudden burning of the earth. But by the same word, the same word that created, the same word that destroyed uh, during Noah, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly. First great universal judgment was water. The second will be fire. You know, like I said, we don't have time to go into all those details. History is not open-ended. God will bring it to conclusion. The scoffers and the Mockers don't want to allow for the intervention of God at all. They don't want to allow for God's supernatural work in any aspect of their lives. Peter is saying that they just shut their eyes to the facts of history. I've given you three examples, Peter says, and they shut their eyes. And the lesson for us is this is a moral, this is a moral universe. Sin will not go unpunished forever. And you know, there were before the rain started, there were there were mockers and scoffers there in Noah's day. But as the flood water started to rise, their mocking went away. As the downpours refused to let up, the people clinging to the tops of trees realized their inevitable fate. They weren't scoffing anymore. And you won't find any mockers when Christ returns again in the judgment. Instead, all you'll find is every knee bowing and every tongue confessing the truth of God's Word and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But by then, it'll be too late for those who refused. There are three biblical examples. That's his response from Scripture. Two other responses. First of all, God's perspective on time. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, think of what they're dealing with. They're dealing with like 30, 40 years difference when Peter's writing this. It's been 30, it's been 40 years. Peter, he's not going to come. We thought he was going to come right away. He told us he was going to come. Why didn't he come? Well, here we are, 2,000 years later, standing on that promise. Don't get tired of the delay. There's reason for it. He's basing that actually on Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And whenever I read that uh, verse in, in Second Peter, I 
I think of the conversation between God and that little young boy, which you've probably heard before. The boy says to God, Is it true that one trillion dollars is like ten dollars to you? And God says to the boy, Yes, my son. The boy says to God, Then is it true that a thousand years is just like a day to you? And God says to the boy, Yes, my son. The boy says to God, Can I borrow ten million dollars? And God says to the boy, Give me a day to think about it. God has always seemed slow to us humans. Even the prophets complained how long it took God. Remember Habakkuk? How long, O Lord, how long? It would be hard to find a prophet in the Old Testament that complains about how long God was taking. Our lives are but a vapor compared to eternity. God's not slow, but he delays for reasons. I've told people many, many times, use this quote on many, many of you, when you're waiting for something to happen. God may be slow, but he's always on time. And that's Peter's argument here in verse 8. One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That's true. God has an entire... God's not outside of time. God created time. God has a different perspective on time. And then the third response to the scoffers. Peter shares God's purpose in waiting. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill the promise, as some count slowness, like you and me, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In my experience, no verse is taken out of context more than that verse, except maybe John 3.16. Why would Peter write as he, as, as he writes, as specific people make numerous statements about their faith and how they're to walk with the Lord? And he's writing and he's saying, I'm writing a letter to you. If all of a sudden he's going to address everybody, every single human that ever lived. There are Christians who use this verse, Christians of a... Uh, a particular theological perspective who use this verse to say it's God's will that everybody be saved. We've got too much other scripture that denies that. Ultimately, bottom line, is not God's will that any of the elect perish. Jesus will not come again until the last person who is chosen before the foundation of the world repents. Hallelujah. He's patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish. He's writing this letter to the church. 
And he's even saying directly to these people, you have children that haven't repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're lost right now, but they've been called by God and their day is coming. I'm going to wait for them. He doesn't. God doesn't wish that they perish. I'm going to wait for them to respond to the gospel. He's patient toward us. Some people think that this means God doesn't want anybody to be unsaved. Well, that's not true. If God didn't want anybody to go to hell, nobody would go to hell. If God didn't want anyone to perish, nobody would perish. If God wanted all to come to repentance, everybody would come to repentance. That's God. Paul tells us something in Romans 11 that brings this in perspective. 11.25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know why God is waiting? Because the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in yet. That's why. Before the Lord's return... They will. In um, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we are reminded that God has appointed a day for the, for the evil. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so he will have false teachers as well. All throughout Scripture, Romans 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, we can't see them all. Proverbs 16:4, we see that there's a place for the evil. The Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble. So it follows that God does not will the salvation of every member of the human race. It is not His will that every man without, uh, without exception should repent. Because repentance is a gift. If God willed it, He'd give everyone repentance. But obviously He doesn't. In that verse, verse 9, The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That verse would make no sense otherwise. Peter is telling us that Christ's return awaits the repentance of certain people. If Christ's return waited the repentance of every individual without exception, he would never return. Because there have already been unrepentant people die. Then the scoffers would be right. He's not coming back. He couldn't. 
He was waiting for everybody to repent. Peter is simply saying, Christ will not return until every one of the elect come to repentance. Don't use that verse out of context. His delay is an act of mercy. It's interesting that the false teachers or the scoffers are using God's delay against him. And God is using the delay for their good. So sad. God is patient. God is not slow. Perceived slowness is God's desire to see repentance. And it's an act of mercy. Until It's an act of mercy until all the flock are gathered to the fold. He's loving. Doesn't want his children to perish. We, on the other hand, prefer to rush to judgment. But God is patient. Those of you who are here today without Christ, my encouragement to you is turn to Christ today. Repent of your sin. You repent of your sin, turn to Him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be eternally grateful that God was patient and He waited for you. Don't put it off. Today might be your last chance. We don't know that day when He returns. The Word of God will always deliver on its promises. It's what Peter's telling the church against the scoffers. The Word of God will deliver on its promises. It always has and it always will. Think about that. Let's pray. If you are here without Christ, I encourage you as we sing this last hymn to make your way to the back during the hymn. Pastor Greg and others will be back there to pray with you, to spend some time with you. I encourage you to do that. That's true. Oh, so true. Do not wait. Do not put it off. You may not have another chance. Give your heart to Christ today. The one who died on the cross in your behalf so you wouldn't have to pay the price for your sin. Why not? Run to Him today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. And a Word we get to proclaim even as Peter proclaimed to the church. We pray, Lord, that You might change us by the power of Your Word. Move us from where we are right now to where You want us to be. We might go from this place and declare Your great goodness for Your glory. Amen. 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 Amen.